Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this study we will examine Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. I'm going to call this section, Jesus is our faithful high priest. Our context is this, in chapter, in the first part of chapter 2, Jesus told the Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of your, don't neglect their so great a salvation. Don't drift back into Judaism. And then he starts talking about how God is going to bring many sons to glory, and Jesus is our brother, and that's how he's going to do it. And so we continue now in chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, and we're going to talk again about Jesus, our faithful high priest. Our high priest, he's faithful, he's merciful, and he's again superior to angels. That theme keeps popping up all the way through the book of Hebrews, or at least the first part of the book of Hebrews. So we start in verses 14 and 15. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Now, who are these children that have flesh and blood in common with each other? Well, here's some options. It could be all of the human race. I don't think that's what God, what the author is talking about. It's true all the human race are children of God in the sense that God is their common creator. But the context here in verse 15, the author is talking about how Jesus will free those who are held in slavery. Well, the whole human race is not freed from from slavery. So I don't think Clark is right there. Well, Clark suggested he might not affirm it, but I don't think it's all of the human race who are the children. It's Christians. Now, since the children, it's talking about Christian brothers and sisters. John Gill affirms that. I think he's right. Some people have suggested that the children is ethnic Jews, whether they believe or not. No, I don't think so. Some people have even said it was the apostles. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. No, it's Christians. All Christians have flesh and blood in common. Jesus also shared in these. He shared in what? In these things. In flesh and blood. He was flesh and blood just like Christians are. Now, as we go through our section here, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, we'll see reasons why Jesus shared in flesh and blood. In other words, why Jesus became a man as well as a God. Verse 14, it was to destroy the devil. In verse 15, he became a man in order to deliver those who were deliver those who were subject to slavery. In verse 16, he became flesh and blood to help the offspring of Abraham. In verse 17, he became a man to become a merciful and faithful high priest. And still in verse 17, he became a man to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And in verse 18, he became a human being. He partake he partook of flesh and blood to help those who are tempted and tried. So that's why Jesus shared in flesh and blood. It was very important that he become a man as well as a God, as well as being a God. Now, he shared in flesh and blood. Now, that doesn't mean he was exactly like the children. It was in a somewhat similar manner that he was like the children, but it was not altogether in like manner. Jesus didn't sin like the rest of flesh and blood humanity. So there's the big difference. We're flesh and blood, but we're sinful flesh and blood. Jesus is flesh and blood. But he's sinless flesh and blood. Now, this verse is a perfect verse to use against ascetics. We don't have many of those today. The people that say that Jesus is just a ghost, Jesus didn't have a real body. There were a lot of them back there in the first century A.D. For example, the book of John, that's obviously written against ascetics, uh, docetics. He talks about Jesus whom our eyes have seen and our hands have touched because he's flesh and blood trying to get rid of the ghost idea. Well, this verse will do it too here. Jesus shared in flesh and blood. So that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death. Now, of course, that's the devil. He's the one that has the power of the death. 
of death. Now, destroy means, in this context, to render powerless, as John Gill says. Here's another example, 2 Timothy 1.10. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, that doesn't mean that death is completely done away with as, as in the sense of vaporized into non-existence. It just means the power of the devil is destroyed. Now, this word destroy comes up in another theological context. I think it's concerning the old man. The old man has been destroyed. My memory's a little fuzzy. It's back in Romans. And I hold the position that the old man has been completely vaporized out of existence. I think I can prove it. I realize a lot of people don't agree with that. But one of the defenses against my position is, well, the old man didn't really get vaporized. He's just powerless now. I don't know. When you put somebody into the watery grave of baptism, are you just saying, well, this person's powerless now because he's under the water? Or do you say he's dead? But anyway, the word, it depends on the context here. How are you going to take that word destroy? And here it's obviously not vaporized out of context because the devil is still in existence. Unfortunately, now he's lost a lot of power. He is bound, as in Revelation 20, he cannot stop the spread of the gospel to the nations. When Jesus rose on the cross, he put an open shame to all those de devils that were sitting there, probably very upset. So we need to not talk about how the devil is the prince of the power of this world. No, Jesus is reigning. He's the one that has dominion. He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He has dominion. He has dominion as soon as he rose from the dead and, and resurrected. He's the king. He's the king. He's on David's throne now. Uh, I'm sorry to say, all you old-time dispensationalists who believe that Jesus is not on the throne of David, and that's not going to happen to the millennium. Oh, no. He's on the throne now. All right, verse 15. Jesus, through his death, destroyed the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and Jesus, through his death, in verse 15, freed those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. That would be us. That would be yours truly. That would be any human being on earth, because we all are going to die. I love listening to non-Christians talk about this, talk about death, that, and I say, uh, are you going to die one day? You thought about that? Well, you talk about denial. You talk about changing the subject. And I keep saying, well, you know, you are going to die. Have you made provision for that? Well, it doesn't matter. I just live my life down here. Yeah, right. That ain't the way people live. They're afraid of dying. Or at least 99% of the people on this planet are afraid of dying. They don't like it. Now, there's a few that commit suicide because of their grief and their despair and so forth, but most people are scared to death of dying. But in Jesus, you don't have to worry about that anymore. He promises eternal life. I read one time that there's not a lot of stuff in the Bible about heaven and what it's like, and that actually is true. But by golly, there's a lot of stuff about eternal life. And you take away the hope of heaven, you might as well destroy the Christian religion. You've got to have hope in heaven. You will have, if you believe in Jesus, he will give you the hope of eternal life. He will give you the desire to see what your mansion is like in glory land, to use metaphorical terms. So, we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Notice the devil is said to be holding the power of death. Well, that shows he's still in existence. The present tense here shows that the devil is not completely done in at the cross. However, his power was broken. I mentioned earlier about him being bound. Let me quote that verse explicitly, Revelation 20, verse 2. He, that's God, seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. A thousand years, of course, is a, is a metaphorical 
symbol of the church age between the first and the second advent. I know there are other views out there, but I'm but I take a non premill view and during that thousand years the devil cannot hinder the progress of the gospel as the gospel is now spread all over the world. I've seen it in China for twenty something years. I mean it's just amazing how the God is spreading in Africa. The gospel's spreading in India. I wish I could say the same thing about America, but that's all right. There are even Christians here too. The devil's power is broken. I often tell people, you know, you Quit being afraid of the devil. The devil is afraid of you. Look at Jesus. The devils were scared of him. Scared to death of him. And Jesus lives in you through his Holy Spirit. How did the devil hold the power of death? As the author of Hebrews says in verse 14. The devil holds the power of death. Genesis 2.17 But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it you will certainly die. So God says, you listen to the devil, you're going to die. Of course, we know in Genesis chapter 3, that's exactly what happened. Adam and Eve listened to the devil, and they died. That's how he had the power of death, by tempting people not to believe in God. More specifically, what are some of options on how the devil can hold the power of death? Well, here's an option. The devil's ability to cause man to fear death. When you fear something, it has power over you. And if the devil can cause you to fear about fear to die if he can give you a fear of dying well then he's got power of you he's got the power of death over you now this would especially be true of jews because jews knew the terrors of the law the afterlife wasn't mentioned too much in the old testament if at all i don't even know where it i mean maybe hinted at but you know that's it was mainly the terrors of the law and how you better fly right or god's holiness is going to cut you down and so the devil then says, okay, you violated God's law. You're going to die. You're going to die. That's power. Some people say that the devil has the power of life, the power of death, because the devil can kill and destroy men at will, at pleasure. No, he cannot. And thank God for it, because if he could, he's so hateful and mean and bigoted and nasty, he would kill every human being on this planet in a heartbeat if he could. But God's not going to let him do that because God's, Plans for mankind have to be worked out. So we've got to remember, the devil is nothing to be sneezed at. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I've done some demon exorcism before. It's nasty. And I've been, you know, harassed by the devil, evil dreams and such. I'm not saying the devil, and when I say the devil, I mean the devil and his demons. I mean, Lucifer himself is probably not going to come after little old me, but he's going to send demons to do it. And it's not pleasant, and it's unfortunate, and we have to walk in constant victory and, and warfare with the devil, of course. But that doesn't mean we're going to lose because the devil's power is broken. We need to remember that. We need to remember 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five: Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The devil no longer has the power of death over us. We go to Hebrews 2, verse 16. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring, who is the he here that does not reach out to angels. Who does not reach out to angels? That would be Jesus. It is clear that Jesus does not reach out to help angels. Obviously, angels are already saved. They don't need to get saved, so they don't need Jesus. Well, who does Jesus reach out to help? Abraham's offspring. Well, who are Abraham's offspring? That would be all believers, not just Jewish believers. Romans 4.16. This is why the promise is by faith. That's the promise to Abraham. So that may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, all the descendants of Abraham, not only to those who are of the law, not only to Jews, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. That would be Gentiles. And then Paul finishes up. He is the father of us all. So believing Jews as well as believing Gentiles are Abraham's offsprings, 
offspring, and that is who Jesus has helped. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Well, how does Jesus help? Well, the context of Hebrews chapter 2 tells us he helped Abraham's offspring, believers, by saving them in verse 3, by bringing them to glory in verse 10, by sanctifying them in verse 11, to make propitiation for their sins in verse 17, and for suffering for them in verse 18. That's how he helps us. So that word help is a little understated, is it not? We go to verse 17, Hebrews 2. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be like his brothers in every way. He had to. He must. Why does he have to be like his brothers? Why does he have to come down and live a human flesh and blood life? Well, John Gill says it's because the justice and love of God required his sacrifice as a mediator. To be a mediator between God and man, you've got to be a man. You've got to be God to represent the God side of the negotiation, and you've got to be a human to represent the human side of the negotiation. And remember, of course, that this is not really a negotiation. It's a, it's a transaction in which humans now can come in close fellowship with God because our mediator is both human and divine. So he had to be human in order to get us humans up there in contact with God. He had to be like his brothers in every way. Well, if he's going to do the will of the Father, he had to die. It was necessary. He had to be like his brothers in order to die. Because how can you die if you're not a human being? How can you pay the humanity's the price for humanity's sin unless you as a human suffer punishment? He had to be man in order to propitiate mankind's sin, sins in order to forgive man's sins. That's why he had to be like his brothers. That's why he had to be like flesh and blood. All right, so he was like his brothers in every way so that, in order that, he could become a merciful and high, faithful high priest. He couldn't become a high priest unless he were a man. He couldn't be merciful unless he were a man because he wouldn't understand the plight of man. So that's why he had to be a flesh and blood brother. Now, he, Jesus became a merciful high priest. This was not a requirement found in the Old Testament for priests, actually. This is my speculation. Maybe that it wasn't a requirement because Old Testament priests, it's my speculation that Old Testament priests didn't identify with the people because they didn't have to suffer. But in Jesus' case, he was a high priest, but he was also the sacrifice. Jesus paid a price for his people like the Old Testament priests didn't. Thus, Jesus showed mercy to the people in a way the Old Testament priests could not. Now, all that's my, my thinking. I didn't get that from a commentary, but I really think it's true. Jesus is not only the priest, he's the sacrifice, and therefore his sacrifice means more, obviously, than the sacrifice of those bulls, as important as the typology was. He's a merciful high priest. Jameson Fawcett Brown says showing mercy to others is much more likely to be shown by people who have suffered the same thing as others. And that's the absolute truth. I remember one time everything in the world went wrong. You know, you go went through this terrible trial and... I was, I could hardly get out of bed in the morning. I was thinking about, I wish I could go to heaven now. You know, I don't believe in suicide, of course, but, you know, maybe if somehow, maybe, you know, maybe God would make my heart stop or something and I could just go up to heaven and get, old, get off of this, out of this veil of tears. Maybe I could shuffle off this mortal coil somehow. And, and anyway, I was driving down the road and I saw this sign that said something about depression. It was one of these mental health public service ads or maybe it was an ad for a hospital. I don't know. I don't remember. But I just remember reading that, and I had total empathy for people who are depressed. Total and complete understanding. 
well, maybe not totally incomplete, but you know what I mean. I really care about people that are depressed. This is, I care about people who have a hard time making a living because I moved nine times in the first s- several years of my marriage, bounced from job to job, wondering where my next meal was going to come from. I, I have sympathy for people who are young and starting out, try, trying to make it. Anyway, that's just human nature. You empathize with people who have suffered the same things you do. Now, Jesus, the analogy of Jesus being a merciful high priest as opposed to just being a priest, a high priest, here's an analogy. A, a physician who is sympathetic and genuinely interested in his patient is much a better doctor than one who is stoic and distant and easily irritated. Stoic, distant, stoic, distant from and easily irritated by his patient. Big difference. Jesus is a is is a high priest who handles the transaction of getting us legally free from our sins, but he cares about it too. He cares about us. He's merciful. He's a faithful high priest. He's faithful to God's plan to offer him up as a sacrifice through an agonizing death on the cross. He was faithful to God's plan and God's direction. Here's some scriptures in Hebrews, Hebrews 3, verses 5 through 6. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. Christ is faithful as a son over his household. Hebrews 10:23. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he, Jesus, who promised, is faithful. He will never, ever let us down. He is always interceding for us to the Father. He is a faithful high priest. Now, in the Old Testament, the only priest who could enter the Holy of Holies was the high priest. An ordinary priest could not do that. He can only he, The high priest entered the Holy of Holies on only one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. He did that to make a sacrifice for the sins of the whole nation. Jesus fulfilled this type because he enters into the presence of God. And, of course, the Holy of Holies was the presence of God, where the Shekinah glory was in the Old Testament priesthood. Jesus goes into the presence of God, and he makes atonement for the sins of not the whole nation, but all well of all the royal nation, the the the, the well, we won't call them the nation, but the the body of Christ, the church. Jesus makes atonement for all of the church. I was trying to think of that verse in Peter: "We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation." Of course, that's referring to the church. Well, the nation that Jesus saves is the whole church, even as the high priest atoned for the sins in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel. Now, Jesus is said to be a propitiation in our verse here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, a propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, that word is a difficult word. And in fact, it's translated so differently in the English translations, you really have to go back to the Greek and just remember the Greek word in order to keep it straight in your head. Let me give you some other translations. The KGV and the Montgomery translations say reconciliation. So Jesus is a reconciliation, which, of course, is to make former enemies friends again. The Mason New Testament, the New American Bible, and the Wesley New Testament translate it as either as expiate or expiation. So Jesus is the expiation of our sins. Expiate just means to take them away, I suppose. The New American Standard Bible, Young's Literal Translation, and the American Standard Version say that Jesus is a propitiation, just as the Holman Christian Study Bible says. That's the one I'm using. The Weymouth Version says to atone. So sometimes you see atone, sometimes you see propitiate, sometimes reconcile. Well, when you have all those different English translations, that makes it difficult for the English speakers. So let's look at the Greek word. It's helasterios, the noun form of it, helasterios, propitiation, helasterios. Here's a definition that my friend Steve Atkinson, he might have got it from a lexicon somewhere. It says, quote, the removal 
appeasement of wrath by the offering of a gift. Now, whenever I see propitiation, I always say the appeasement of an angry God, just as a shorthand, but it's deeper than that. It has some semantic overtones here. Appeasement by offering of a gift. And, of course, if you look at pagan religions, that's all it was, was offering gifts to the gods to appease their wrath and make the crops grow and to take care of the pestilence and the floods and the famines. So you give them a gift, namely that sacrificial animal. You feed them because they're hungry. Well, in the Old Testament, how was propitiation done? Well, there was a sin offering, an animal that was sacrificed, and his blood was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Bauer, Arndt, and Gendrick, the famous lexicon, says that in the Septuagint, Helasterios was used to refer to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And so from there, we get the idea that blood is sprinkled on the lid, so therefore a propitiation is made, therefore... There's reconciliation, therefore the sins have been expiated, taken away, and the wrath of an anger God has been appeased, the gift has been made, the gift of Jesus' blood, and our sins are covered, atoned. Atoned means to cover or to reconcile. So that's kind of what the word means. But just shorthand, just remember this. Propitiation means the removal of wrath, excuse me, propitiation means the appeasement of wrath by the offering of a gift. That's the simplest thing. We go now to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For since he himself, that's Jesus, was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested. I like this help. It's so understated. Help, oh my gosh, he saved us from a horrible fate, death and hell. Help, yeah, that's help, all right. Now, he's able to help those who are tested. Now, of course, the author of the book of Hebrews is writing to Christians who are being tested, who are being persecuted. If we get to the famous faith chapter in chapter 11, we'll talk about people being sawn in two and all. The atmosphere was not good. Visit those who are in prison. The People had their money taken away from them. Things were bad. People were being tested and suffered. And so the author is saying, look, Jesus was tested and suffered too, so he, has, he can commiserate with you, Hebrew Christians. And he can help you. The Greek word there for tempted is parazomai, for tested. Parazomai, sometimes that word is translated tempted. And test and tempt, those two words are so interchangeable. The boundaries between the two are so fuzzy. They overlap. They separate sometimes. This word has caused more trouble in understanding. For example, what's that verse in James? That no one, God never tempts anyone. But then you find verses that says, oh, God tests people. Well, it's the same word, but it has different meanings. And this is not only true in English, it's true in Greek. It's true in Chinese, I know. There's two different words for in Chinese. I read somewhere there was two different Greek words. I haven't studied this closely. Two different Greek words for to tempt and to test. I think that might be overstating it a little bit. I did look up the Greek word here, parazomai, and there's lexicon said that there are two definitions for parazomai, to test. The good sense and the bad sense. The good sense is to put someone to the test to see what good or evil is in the tested one. For example, if you test gold, you assay gold, you test it, you're trying to see whether there's gold in that metal or whether it's copper or something else that's fake. You test it to see whether something's good or not. If I give a student a math test, an algebra test, I'm trying to see whether there's good or evil in that student whether he knows the math or whether he doesn't know the math. Of course, my purpose is not to destroy the student. I want him to prove to himself and to me. It has a sense of prove. To test means to prove, to show that something is acceptable or good or not good. That's the good sense of the word, to test somebody. But as the Greek scholar Wust says, so many people fail a test like that that 
the pejorative idea of test came in. I'm going to give you a test analogy. Oh, no, I'm going to fail again. Oh, please don't test me. You are tempting me to evil. <laughs> and so then the bad sense evolved, and the bad sense of test is a solicitation to do evil, to, to tempt me, in other words. So that word has had an interesting semantic evolution, I guess you would say. Well, now, what sense is the word being used here? For since he himself was tested, well, the, it's talk, referring to Jesus in the wilderness with the devil. Obviously, the devil wasn't testing him to see whether there was good or evil in Jesus. He was trying to tempt, to seduce him to evil. He was using, he was soliciting Jesus to, evil, to do evil. So the word here is used in a bad sense. Now, what's the difference between Jesus's temptation and ours? And of course, the author is trying to say that there's a, a continuity of experience between Jesus who was tested and the Hebrew Christians who were being tested. So they both had sufferings and temptations. But what's the difference between Jesus' temptation and the Hebrew Christians and ours? Jesus resisted the temptation, but often we don't. Here's a possible example, kind of a trite example really, but Jesus was probably tempted to marry. He was an eligible bachelor. But he resisted that temptation so he could carry out his father's mission. That's my good friend Steve Ackerson came up with that interesting idea. Jesus was tempted a lot worse than that. He was tempted, and the devil offered him power. Get on the temple and look at all the kingdoms of the world. They're all yours. He was starving to death. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. Hell, he turned the bread into some turn the stone into some bread and eat some bread. That's being tempted. That's a solicitation to do evil. All right, let's look at. This idea of Jesus, our high priest, suffering temptation like us. Hebrews 4.15. For we have not an high priest. This is King James, I'm sorry. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. So again, the high priest needs to share in our humanity, and Jesus does. He was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Yay. Our infirmities are manifold and multitudinous. 1 Corinthians 10:13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. Now here, this is a sense of a trial, which solicits you to do evil by giving in to the trial. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. So that's in this, a bad temptation. These, are, these scriptures I just read are solicitations to do evil, seductions to do evil, bad. But this verse we just read in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you will not be allowed to be tempted above what you are able, which means you can resist the devil, you should resist the devil, and you must resist the devil, and you don't yield to the temptation. Now, of course, that can be very hard if you're weak. You have to pray, you have to, you know, you got to fight the temptation. But if you give in to a temptation, you cannot say the devil made me do it. But he didn't make you do it. He doesn't have the power to make you do anything. He's got the power to tempt you, but only you have the power to yield to that temptation. How was Jesus tested? Here's a good quote from John Gill. He was tested with, quote, Outward poverty and meanness, with slight and neglect from his own relations, and with a general contempt and reproach among men. He was often tempted by the Jews with ensnaring questions. He was deserted by his followers, by his own disciples, yea, by his God and Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, my gosh. 
I mean, you know, they say Jesus was a man of sorrows. If you sit by there and try to put yourself in his shoes and experience some of the emotions he felt as he went through that short period of his ministry, it was really bad. I mean, really bad. He did that for us. He suffered all that, and that helped him as a human being to be compassionate for other people who are suffering. Suffering makes people compassionate, compassionate especially when the object of, the, of their compassion is suffered in the same way. And there's no question about that. Well, because of all this testing and suffering that Jesus underwent, because of that, he is able to help those who are tested. That would be us Christians, and in more particular, the Hebrew Christians to whom the author was writing. He's able to help them. As Steve Ackerson says, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. That's how he helped us. He made us the Son of God. Can't beat that for help. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. In our next audio, we will start on Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to talk about how Jesus is superior to Moses. In chapters 1 and 2, of course, Jesus is said to be superior to angels. In chapter 1, he was superior to prophets in general. Now he's going to be, in particular, a particular prophet named Moses and, and lawgiver Moses. As great as he was, Jesus was still superior to him. And then we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, entering into his rest. I hope you stay tuned for that audio. hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>